standing for the word of God. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 13. Our aim this morning is freedom that produces real joy. And so the beginning and the end of this scripture has the word rejoice. And to help us have that word resonate in our mind and heart this morning, when I read the word rejoice, I'd like you to say it with me. Maybe not even just say it, but say it, right? For all you drama people out there, you can say rejoice or rejoice, okay? Let's try it. 2 Corinthians 7, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that my letter grieved you, though for only a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness that godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it's been an already a, a wonderful time of worship of, our, of you, our eternal God. We've had some moments of bringing to you, Lord, our, our troubles and experiencing your peace and you as our mighty fortress. We've seen, Lord, how your kindness leads us to repentance. We've meditated on worldly and godly sorrow. We've acknowledged, Lord, that you alone are worthy. And now we see, Lord, in your scripture that freedom leads to joy. God, I pray that you will open our hearts wide this morning to, to hear and see and believe, Lord, the truth of your word. I pray for Pastor Andrew, God, that you will give him a freedom and a joy and a clarity as he preaches so that each one of us, Lord, can walk out of here renewed, refreshed, and strengthened to live a life of freedom and joy. And we pray it in the powerful and wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. wondering where you get stuck. I usually get stuck when it's something mechanical or something in my house that needs repair. I feel much better if it's an intellectual problem or a relational thing, but those things, you know, mechanical, fixing something, I, I get stuck. Remember a time 
came home. I had a scooter at the time that I liked to drive around, and uh, I came home, I walked in the garage, and it was just an overwhelming smell of gas uh, emanating from the big puddle of gas that was under the, under the scooter. You could not avoid it. I thought I was going to die as I walked in the garage. Uh, I walked in the house, and Lisa's like, what was that smell like in the, do you smell that? I'm like, what smell? <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I didn't know what to do about it. And so, you know, it's just better to deny that it's even there uh, than, than have to do with that. I have a little light that has come on on my car now that's telling me my left rear tire is low on air. So I can you know, deflect that and just say, well, it's, you know, it's colder and so sometimes that does weird things to your tires or I can defend it and saying, you know, my Michelin pro forma would never uh, leak air or I can just, again, deny. But my failure to, to deal with these things leaves me stuck. And the only way to get unstuck, whether it's the puddle of gas in my garage or whether it is the uh, tire pressure on my car, is to actually deal with it. And churches can get stuck, too. We have seen that. You know, we, we talk about the Reformation. Uh, what was the, the Protestant Reformation? Well, one way to look at it is to say that was the time when, when the church got a little less stuck than it was. Uh, the church was stuck in uh, some bad habits and things that were going on at the time, having to do with the government, having to do with uh, just the way religion had taken over from the idea of relationship with Jesus. And there was, you know, through God's great grace, a time when the church got a little less stuck. Or we can look at Corinth, and we can see the church was stuck. The church was stuck in uh, a relational issue with Paul. They were stuck in relational brokenness among themselves, and, and they needed to be unstuck. And interestingly enough, uh, the, the antidote for stuckness uh, the, the lubricant that will unstuck whatever it is that we get caught in is this thing called repentance. Uh, and, and that's what Paul is dealing with here in this passage. As we go in our series, we've been looking at the issue of comfort. Remember, we talked about the, the God of all comfort, and that certainly comes up again in this passage, we are comforted, Paul says in verse 13. But today what we want to do is we want to trace how it is that, that Paul gets to that point and how is it that the church experiences this, the, the church in Corinth and by extension our church. And, and by extension, I mean, this really does touch into the Reformation. So we did not necessarily plan, you know, for this passage to be Reformation Sunday, but there is just such a, there's such a uh, coming together of the themes of the Reformation with what Paul is talking about this morning. 
and I want to explore them with you. So let's start with real freedom, and real freedom equals real repentance. Uh, there are a couple of, there's a contrast here that Paul makes, and we don't really know exactly the situation that he's talking about. We know that he sent them a letter. Uh, if, if I made you grieve with my letter, remember 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that he sent to the Corinthian church. He references an earlier letter in 1 Corinthians, then he sent 1 Corinthians, then he sent this tearful letter, or the sorrowful letter that he references here, and then he sent 2 Corinthians to follow up that. We don't know why he sent the tearful letter. We don't know if it's referring to the incident in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where there is uh, uh, open sin going about and he's urging some sort of uh, 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 church discipline in order to deal with that, whether they have or whether they haven't, whether it has something to do with Timothy. Some people have suggested that there uh, when Timothy came, the church was hard on Timothy and there needed to be some reconciliation with Timothy. Or is it having to do with uh, the super apostles and the things that they were saying about Paul? Is there some reconciliation or confrontation that needs to happen with regards to their relationship? We're just not sure. Uh, and he puts things very delicately here so that it doesn't lend us to seeing exactly what he's talking about. But what is clear is that he was very direct with them in his tearful letter, and he was challenging them to pursue reconciliation. He was challenging them to make things right. He was challenging them to own their own junk uh, and to move forward into a place of peace with God and with man. And he didn't know how it was going to go. He did not know how they would receive this letter. And that's why, you know, he's all bound up. He's waiting for Titus. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about that next week as we look at the role that others play in our life. But he's waiting for Titus. He's waiting for the word that he would get back from them. Uh, and he, because he doesn't know how they're going to receive the call that he had put on that Corinthian church to repent. Uh, that call to own their stuff, to make it right. He doesn't know how that is going to go. But thankfully, they responded well. Thankfully, uh, the letter, uh, though it caused them grief, it was only for a while, but it led them uh, into repentance. This is verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Because ultimately the grief that they felt was a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And then he goes on and he expands on this thought, and it's such a crucial, crucial thought. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. Godly grief uh, leads us to repentance uh, without regret. 
What is the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Well, you saw in our confession this morning, uh, we used uh, some words. I've seen them from Tim Keller before. I've seen them at different places. I don't know exactly the origin of all of these words. Uh, But there is that contrast between godly sorrow and and, and worldly sorrow. If you had to look at that, and I would really challenge you to, to take this, maybe challenge, invite is a better word. I would really invite you uh, to, to take this. You know, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? Uh, so in God's kindness, we can be invited to take this and really incorporate it into your life and try to notice the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. In short, I would say this, worldly sorrow uh, is focused on us, it's focused on our feelings of shame, our feelings of of loss or hurt or pain that is caused as a result of uh, our sinful action, which not all of those things are necessarily bad, but they're not sufficient. Uh, and, and worldly sorrow has its object God. Worldly, or sorry, godly sorrow has as its object God. It's not so much that what I have done has caused me pain, it's what has happened in my life has caused pain to God. And there's a recognition furthermore that it is not just the action or the behavior. I think worldly sorrow often focuses on the external Whereas godly sorrow focuses on the internal. My behavior is indicative of what's going on inside my heart. And that is what is more concerning to me. So, you know, one of the confessions says, you know, we become more concerned that we got caught than that we actually committed the action. Have you ever been wasting time? Yes, of course you have. We all have been wasting time. Have you ever been wasting time on the computer and suddenly somebody walks into the room that uh, you don't want them to know that you're wasting time on the computer and you've done that quick switch to another tab? Anybody guilty? (laughs) So, you, you know... So what are you, what are you feeling at that point? You know, what you're feeling at that point, most likely, if you're anything like me, is shame and embarrassment uh, about being found out, you know, that you are wasting time. You know, how many of us really get down to, on our knees at that point and say, God, you, you've given me time to redeem. And I haven't really been redeeming the time and how sad that must make you, you know, because of your graciousness to me and all of it. You see the difference between getting caught and the shame and the embarrassment that comes about because of that and feeling it at a deep heart level. And we learn, we learn as Christians to sort of organize our lives, I would say, I mean, we learn as, as individuals, Christians or otherwise, to organize our lives around worldly sorrow, because we don't like that shame, we don't like that embarrassment, we don't like the pain 
that that brings into our lives. So we learn to manage those things. And we don't let other people see what is going on. You know, have you ever let a colorful word slip? I mean, yes, you have. You've, you've let a colorful word slip at the point. And again, sometimes it's been heard. And, and you've had embarrassment or shame or, you know, feeling bad about that. But how often do those colorful words, you know, percolate in our hearts? And, and, and nobody hears them, but they're there. Nobody, nobody sees them, but that doesn't mean. And, and do we recognize, do we bring those things at that level before the Lord? Do we, do we have the same amount of sadness, you know, the, the godly sorrow that would lead us to that? That's, this is what Paul is encouraging us to distinguish between here. A worldly sorrow that... You know, and, and oftentimes with the worldly sorrow, you get things like deflection or uh, defending or denying, you know, because we don't want to hear it. You know, we just want to move on from the pain as quickly as possible. You know, so uh, we want quick resolution so people are off our back and the situation is resolved. You know, whereas the godly sorrow says, you know what, I, I need to understand this better. I need to understand what is growing in my heart. I need to go deeper with this so that I can find not quick resolution, but true resolution that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, this is what I would say. When we, when we fail to recognize the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, it's when we get stuck. It's when we get stuck in our spiritual lives. It's when... We, we're not making progress because ultimately, what is the gospel? And again, going back to the ideas of the Reformation, this is what the Reformation really encouraged the church back to. The, the gospel is not what we do. It's not managing the exterior. It's not, uh, it, it's not keeping a clean slate one illustration that I've come across in my life, and maybe I've shared with you, uh, has to do with the shark. Uh, say you're out swimming at the ocean, and all of a sudden you see uh, this fin in the water. You, you see that fin, and, and you are getting out of the water, and you're getting your children out of the water. Why? Is it because you're afraid of the fin? Well, not really. You're afraid of what's underneath the fin, right? You're, you're afraid of the jaws. And, and, and oftentimes what we do as Christians is we learn to control the fin. We can keep that down below the surface so nobody can see that. We can clean up our language. You know, we cannot use racial epithets. We can do all sorts of things to control the fin, but it doesn't get rid of the shark. A and that's our hearts. Our hearts are that shark. And what God is saying, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, the way to deal with this, the way to get unstuck, is to acknowledge it. A and to bring it before God with that godly sorrow that says, God, 
I have no rightness in myself. But my only hope of righteousness, my only hope of rightness is in you. You know, I am not going to be able to fix myself. I am completely and totally dependent on you fixing me. That's the difference between a worldly sorrow that learns to control the sin and a godly sorrow that says, I need help to deal with the shark. And this is where Paul is pushing us. We, we see so many examples of this in Scripture. You know, maybe the clearest example of this in Scripture is the difference between Peter and Judas. You know, what, what Peter and Judas did on the night that Jesus died was essentially the same. They both betrayed and denied him. They both uh, refused to be aligned with their Savior at a critical time of crisis. But, but Judas... You know, he, he only operated out of the pain that was there. He, he didn't fly to his Savior and, and look for repentance. If Judas had sought repentance truly, if he had sought forgiveness from his Savior, does any of us think that he wouldn't have been granted that? Of course he would have. But, but he stayed on the worldly sorrow and it led to death. That's exactly what Paul says. Paul, worldly sorrow leads to death. You know, that external, outward death. He hung himself. Peter, on the other hand, fled to the Savior. It's interesting in Acts, you know, you could trace a couple of different passages. You look in Acts chapter 2, you know, the people say, uh, what must we do? You know, Peter had preached about the gospel. What must we do to be saved? Those words aren't there to be fair but that's clearly what they're asking how do we escape this judgment what must we do and what's Peter's answer to them repent and be baptized right same situation or similar situation in Acts chapter 16 Acts chapter 16 uh, Paul is preaching to the the Philippian jailer and the earthquake has come and the Philippian jailer asks the same question he says, what must I do to be saved? And, and what's Paul's answer? Believe and be baptized on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what we see is that repentance and belief, you know, when we're talking about the godly sorrow, it, it's two sides of the same coin. Uh, they, they are the same action. It is a repentant belief. It's a belief that repents. It takes us not to ourselves, not controlling the fin, but it takes us to God. And it looks to Him to be the answer to the shark that lives within our heart. And that's why it's a gift. You know, again, Acts chapter 11, verse 18, the Jews at that point, as Paul is preaching, they were delighted that God granted repentance to the Gentiles. You know, that repentance is a, gr is a grace, something that God works in our heart, that he gives us, that allows us to look to him in honesty, vulnerability, all of these things that Paul has been pushing forward. And notice then that it produces, verse 11, it produces, uh, we have here, 
earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proven yourselves innocent in this matter. Now, there are two things to, to note here, and then I'm going to walk through each word for, for just a second. Uh, the first thing to note, and this is so important, is the order. You know, all of those things, earnestness, zeal, all of these things that we're going to talk about, they come about as a result of true repentance. Uh, they are not the repentance in and of themselves, and, and they are not the things that are employed in order to gain God's favor or to, to, to resolve the situation. Too often we confuse fruits of repentance with repentance itself. And, and what Paul is making clear here is that their godly grief, that, that true sorrow, that true repentance, that was, that was the, the thing, that was the initiator, and then it produced these fruits in you. And so I would encourage you, don't confuse, and, and we do this. Now, does true repentance have fruit? Absolutely. You know, can you check the fruit to see if your heart is moving in the right direction? Yes, you can, but don't confuse the fruit with the repentance. And that's such an easy thing for us to do. It's a, it's a, it's a narrow line, it's a sharp edge uh, for us to walk there. Uh, so that's one observation. The second observation is that this is not them defending or uh, just trying to deny themselves or to clear themselves. Actually, this is what comes out of a godly grief. There is a sincerity or an earnestness. So that's number one. There's actually eight things here to, to note. Uh, there is an, an eagerness to clear your name. Now, that's not defending. That's to make right. You know, what, what's in view here for the Corinthians with Paul is they want true reconciliation. They, they don't want to go on in this situation. They want true reconciliation, and they're, they're willing to, to go the place of godly grief in order to pursue that true recognition, re, uh, uh, reconciliation. Why? Because they have indignation over what they have done. There is a, there's, a true, there's a true sense of grief and a true sense of almost horror over what it is that their sharkish hearts have caused them to do. And there's a fear about, again, a holy fear, like what will happen before God if we don't pursue this reconciliation, if we don't if we are not in a place where we, you know, we pursue, we allow God to make these things right in our life, it produces this, this holy fear and then a longing uh, for righteousness, uh, a zeal for the church, uh, and then punishment, justice to be done. There, you see how that repentance, that being right with God, just changes the affections of the heart. We can't do that ahead of time. And that's often the way we 
think of repentance, it's like, okay, God, I'm bringing this thing before you. I'm going to try to do better. I'll check in with you next week and let you know how it goes. Right? And that's our repentance sometimes. But, but what this is pointing out is that it's the repentance that leads to the heart change. When we lay ourselves out before God and say, I've got nothing. In fact, what you see in me, it's even worse than I can articulate right now. But I'm looking to Jesus and I'm trusting in his finished work on the cross. You see how different than the way that this is and the way things were operating in the Reformation? You know, during the times of the Reformation, you know, it was indulgences and, and going to visit this icon and that place. And, you know, it's doing all of these things. It's, it's finding, you know, some way of beating your body, you know, praying while you're walking up steps, uh, you know, on glass. It was all what you were doing. But what Paul is saying is throwing yourself on Jesus, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is repentance. And what it produces then is new affections. And that's what we see in verse 11. Uh, these new affections as a result of repentance. And of course, the final outcome of that is real joy. You see that in verse 9, you know, the word that Mike had us, uh, uh, you know, simultaneously read together as it is. Paul says, I rejoice because of where you are now, how it's fixed us. Notice that there is a communal aspect to this. You know, when, when we are apart from God, when we operate in, in worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow, it creates dissonance with the people around us. I mean, you know that in your own families or in your close network of friends. You know, if you are out of sorts with God, if you're not really repenting, if you're not really living out the grace of Jesus, is everybody else happy around you? No. You know, because your irritation easily shows or, you know, your despair is affecting them. This is why, you know, the, when we talk about the spiritual life, it's not just about you and God. You know, we are all connected together. We are a family. A and so, you know, our testimony, as we think about the outside world, our testimony is dependent upon each of us finding the godly sorrow and living at peace with God and at peace with one another. And you see how the joy here is in in. Paul in his right reconciliation with the Corinthian church. And then he talks about resting or comfort in verse 13. Therefore, we are comforted earlier in the, the passage, uh, verses 4 to 7. I mean, this just comes out over and over and over. I'm acting in great boldness. I'm filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I am overflowing with joy because of their response to the letter, because of the godly sorrow that it produced in their hearts. 
For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but God who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus who brought this news, not only by his coming, but also with the comfort which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longings, these renewed longings, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. And this is really the heart of the gospel. You know, this is where it leads us. It leads us to rest and rejoicing. And this is why we can say that repentance is a grace. You know that Luther, when he nailed the 95 theses on the door, the first of the theses was, all of the Christian life is one of repentance. That was the first thing that he said needed to change about how the church was operating because he recognized that repentance is the path to appropriating the gospel, to appropriating the goodness of Jesus, to knowing the freedom, the freedom that comes from knowing him. And that's why you know, when I was thinking about this and I was praying through this, I said, you know, this is, this is a love story. You know, we, we so often think about a love story, you know, in terms of Cinderella and the prince and all of that. And maybe there is something in there of that. But here you see a love story between this apostle and the church. It says, I love you. Please look at your heart. You know, find repentance that will lead you to faith. You know, find that faith that will lead you to repentance. You know, so that we can be restored and, and reconciled. But ultimately, it's the love of God that says, I am going to do everything that you can't. I am going to grant you the faith to repent. I am going to grant you the righteousness that you lack. I am going to take care of that sharkish heart, which you could never take care of on your own. And that big puddle of gas that has you stuck, that, that overwhelming odor that you have no idea what to do with, I've made a way through. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that you offer to us in the, the, the godly sorrow, the repentance that you uh, have encouraged the church throughout the ages. We thank you for this love story here between Paul and the Corinthian church, between God and his people. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for, uh, for what he means, the freedom uh, that we experience, how we can be caught just as much in, in religious duty bound by those change as we, chains as we can through drink or drugs or any other thing. But you have truly set us free. You have truly broken our chains and, and brought us to the place where we know joy in the completed and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray now, make our hearts sing.
We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's